Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Welcome back to Building the Future with Dan Rundy. My name is Maggie Seminario. I am the Deputy Director for the Americas Program here at CSIS. I am very pleased to guest host this week's episode on gender equity and global financial inclusion. I am delighted to have Mia Mitchell and Sonia Kelly join this conversation. They are two of the most thoughtful leaders on women's economic empowerment issues. Mia is currently the director of the Women's Economic Empowerment Unit within the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues at the U.S. Department of State. In the past, she served as senior advisor at the National Security Council and the National Economic Council, where she developed and coordinated the Women's Global Development and Prosperative Initiative and supported U.S. priorities in the G7 and G20 process. Sonia, meanwhile, is the Director of Research and Advocacy at Women's World Banking. Sonia and her team use policy trends and research on the financial sector to advocate for women's financial inclusion. She holds a PhD in International Relations from American University, where most of her research focused on financial inclusion policy and regulation. Me and Sonia, thank you so much for joining me today to discuss this important subject. Thank you for having us. Sure. Let me start by asking both of you, how did you get involved in women's economic empowerment issues? Could you please share with us more about your background and what shaped your professional journey that led you to your current role? Sure. Thank you so much for that generous introduction. As you said, I'm Sonia Kelly, and I'm just thrilled to be here. I ended up in women's economic empowerment through financial inclusion, actually. I just saw a lot of potential in this space, and especially in the interaction between financial inclusion and women's economic empowerment for long-term, sustainable, catalytic change for low-income women around the world. So I started in microfinance. I shifted focus to financial inclusion policy and regulation with my PhD and have since consulted for the World Bank and the consultative group to assist the poor. Mia, I actually worked at the State Department for a couple of years on their digital finance strategy, and I'd love to chat with you about that another time. But now that I'm here at Women's World Banking, it's so wonderful to be at an organization that's thinking about solving the problem in addition to understanding it of the 40% of women in emerging markets who are excluded from a bank account or a mobile money account. We know that women lag access to finance compared to their male counterparts and that access, that gap has not decreased over time. So it's definitely a big problem to solve and very happy to be in this space. Terrific. Mia, what about you? Share with us a little bit about your background and what led you to your current role? Absolutely. Thanks. Thank you, Maggie. And thanks for the earlier introduction. It's great to be here today with, with you and with Sonia. 
As you mentioned, I'm currently the director of the Women's Economic Empowerment Unit in the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues at the State Department. And our office is charged with advancing gender equity and equality globally and championing the rights of women and girls in all their diversity through policy programs and partnerships. Prior to this role, as you noted, um, I spent a number of years at the White House um, working at the National Security Council and also at the Office of Management and Budget. And I worked across a range of foreign assistance and foreign policy issues in both of those roles with a particular focus on economic policy and economic growth. And really throughout my career have focused on advancing gender equality and international development objectives more broadly. So I've really enjoyed the opportunities that I've had to help advance gender equality and women's empowerment as part of the United States broader work on on economic growth and development. And it's been a, a meaningful way to support those goals. Terrific. Thank you for that. We're really lucky to have both of you as part of this episode. Sonia, let's start with you. In the last decade, what would you say have been the major advances that we have made in ensuring greater access to financial services for women, particularly in the developing world? Yeah, I think the numbers share the story. The percent of women in the developing world who have a bank or a mobile money account has grown by at least 22 percentage points from 37% in 2011 to 59% at last count within the decade. So I think that's really exciting progress. 22 percentage points is not insignificant. And We've seen huge attention to this issue from uh, major international organizations and development finance institutions and governments and the private sector alike. India, Indonesia, Mexico have seen even greater increases than that average. So that I think that's really exciting. If I were to draft some headlines of things I think are driving this, I think one I'd say Mainstream finance takes on financial inclusion challenge would be the first headline that I'd put forward. I think the financial sector has really taken on the vision of financial inclusion of women. Another headline I would say is innovation in financial services drives down cost. And we know that decreased cost of services has meant that greater scale is possible with mainstream financial institutions. Related... Fintech disrupts the traditional banking trajectory, <laughs> might be another, another headline, with digital financial services, financial services integrated into e-commerce and social networking platforms, customized app interfaces. I think, I think that's been really exciting. But from my perspective, the biggest driver of this jump in women's access to financial services has been the financial services community designing for women. And this is a big shift because before this decade in emerging markets, we thought designing for everybody meant designing for women. And now we know that if you're not designing for women, you're probably designing for men. (laughs) And this is something that we've recognized both in emerging markets, but also in high income economies. Um, We know that women have unique needs and preferences. They have different opinions on privacy. They have different responsibilities in their home, which might limit their mobility or distance they can travel. And they need financial capability training, and they need to be able to practice using services. So the industry designing for that, I think, is a huge win and really, really drives access to services, but also use of services. Fantastic. Mia, would you please tell us about 
financial products that are specifically designed for women and which ones have seen successes overseas? Yeah, it's a great question. And I'd love to share a little bit about several of the programs that the U.S. government specifically has been involved in helping develop and and launch. As Sonia noted, of course, there's been a lot of progress, um, particularly in the last decade, which is encouraging. But we also know around the world, women continue to face a number of barriers in accessing credit. The World Bank estimates that women are 20% less likely than men to have an account at a financial institution, um, and 17% less likely to have borrowed from such an institution in the past year. Rough estimates put it at nearly 1 billion women around the world that are currently unbanked. So the need is tremendous. We also know that the reasons for this are intersecting. They include persistent discrimination on the basis of gender and other identity factors, a lack of education and training, including financial literacy, social, cultural, legal barriers, etc. For instance, today, more than 100 economies around the world still do not prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex or gender in access to credit. And financial access, as we've discussed, is increasingly linked to digital access and skills, which can further compound those barriers. We also know that these efforts and and addressing these issues is is even more pressing today amidst COVID-19, which has disproportionately impacted women and girls around the world, including through increased rates of gender-based violence um, and increased economic insecurity. And so um, prioritizing this work for women and girls' digital and financial inclusion will be even more critical as, as part of our COVID recovery. In terms of specific programs that and efforts that the U.S. government has been involved with, um, there's been a number of really innovative projects in, in recent years that have worked to increase women's access to credit. Among these, I would highlight the Women Entrepreneurs Finance Initiative, or WeFi, at the World Bank, which was launched four years ago with the goal of addressing specifically the credit gap facing women-owned and led small and medium-sized enterprises specifically. Um, Another um, really fantastic initiative that the U.S. government has helped to lead is the 2X initiative through our Development Finance Corporation that has increasing involvement from other development finance institutions, excuse me, as well. And our 2X initiative seeks to mobilize capital to women-owned, women-led, and women-supporting businesses. And to date, through the U.S. DFC, um, we've mobilized more than $7 billion in private sector support for women around the world. So these are a few examples of, of programs that have had success. I'll note, I think one of the important things that these efforts have done is to seek to target several of the major barriers through their interventions. So for instance, increasing lending and guarantees to financial institutions to reach more women borrowers, while also providing training to the staff of those entities on women borrowers, um, and at times also addressing broader policies and the regulatory environment. Sonia, the global pandemic accelerated the adoption of digital payments and other forms of digital, let's call it consumption, in many parts of the world. Can you talk about how this digitalization trend has played out for women? Absolutely. And I think Mia kind of started us down that road, too, by mentioning COVID-related challenges that women around the world have been facing. And so this is a nice compliment to her response to your last question. We definitely have seen an acceleration of the use of digital channels. When we did an analysis with our partners at the University of Zurich of lockdowns, we saw an increase of daily downloads in Android finance apps by 50%. And they went up by 50%. And then the daily download rates actually stayed up there after lockdowns in markets. 
um, and it's not just finance, we've seen entrepreneurs around the world quickly adapting to e-commerce and social media apps for their customer engagement. And so they're taking orders and communicating and negotiating prices and advertising on these platforms, which I think is a huge opportunity. And we decided to do some research on it. We thought this opportunity would naturally lead to women entrepreneurs' digital financial engagement. So, you know, women entrepreneurs are adapting to digital channels to sell their goods and engage with their customers. So why wouldn't they adapt to digital finance? But evidence is showing us otherwise. I just want to, I want to give one example from Mexico, from some of our research in Mexico, where we talked with entrepreneurs about and also observed them making a sale to their customers. And so they would be digital. They would advertise on Facebook and then they would head over to WhatsApp and work directly with their customer to make sure they were getting them the right thing and they would negotiate the price. But then when it comes to actually making the transaction, they would find a very inefficient way, from my perspective, of getting the money. And probably the most sophisticated but inefficient way is we heard over and over again these women entrepreneurs giving their customer their 17-digit account number and asking their customer to go to the local convenience store to the cashier, giving the cashier the 17-digit account number, and then handing over the cash to the cashier who would then deposit it in the entrepreneur's account. The customer then would take a photograph of the receipt and text the photo to the entrepreneur. Essentially, they were recreating a payment transaction that could have been done completely on their smartphone, which they were already using, for WhatsApp communication and Facebook customer engagement, but they preferred this way even though there was user error and even though it was tremendously time costly to both the entrepreneur and the customer. So our hope is that when services are better tailored to women customers and when there are easier entry points for these women entrepreneurs where they're not afraid of making a mistake, we'll start to see a rise in participation in digital financial services in the same way we've seen a rise in participation in those digital channels. And some examples of where this is happening, you may have seen the announcement that Facebook Financial has integrated payments in Brazil into the messaging platforms that entrepreneurs and customers are already using into WhatsApp. We've also seen in high income economies how PayPal has become well integrated into e-commerce, the e-commerce experience. And then there are other examples of e-commerce and financial institutions working together like the Uber platform and BBVA have partnered together in Mexico to provide accounts to drivers and deliver financial capability messages alongside the provision of accounts. So I think there are some glimpses that show us that this is happening, that the acceleration of digital broadly has led to digital financial services engagement, but we're not quite at equilibrium yet. Well, and sometimes it's more about changing behavior along with changing rules and regulations and technology. Mia, I'd like to turn to you for a second. The U.S. government, and in particular USAID, played a significant role in advancing the microfinance revolution and the financial inclusion agenda. Now, diversity and inclusion are high on the Biden-Harris administration's agenda. 
how can State Department and USAID re-champion gender equity, and in particular, as it relates to financial services and financial inclusion? Sure, it's it's a great question. And as you noted, the Biden-Harris administration has very much prioritized advancing diversity, equity, and inclusion, including gender equity. President Biden has signed a series of, of executive actions since coming into office in January. And among others, that includes an executive order that he signed on March 8th, International Women's Day, which established a new White House Gender Policy Council and outlined the administration's priorities for gender equity and equality. The council itself uh, represents uh, one of the most significant elevations of gender in a U.S. presidential administration to date. And within the executive order, which is EO 14020, President Biden commits the United States to a number of priorities for advancing gender equality, both at home and abroad. And these include priorities for economic security and, and opportunity, including addressing structural barriers to women's participation in the labor force, and also working to decrease wage and wealth gaps. So that will help to inform the work, certainly, of departments and agencies across the U.S. government, including the Department of State, USAID, as you note, um, and others in the U.S. government that are working to advance women's economic empowerment and, and gender equality more broadly. As we work to do this, we'll be applying a gender analysis to our efforts, um, including those to promote women's financial inclusion, and working to consider ways in which we can adjust financial services and support new and innovative financial services that better fit women's needs and the realities that we're seeing on the ground today. So that may include everything from considering alternative collateral requirements, which may still be a hurdle for too many women, to helping support um, and develop new and innovative products. Gender equality is not guaranteed to be an outcome of global financial inclusion and therefore must be purposely integrated Sonia, could you please talk about how can financial inclusion be integrated and how can we work on social norms that may go against women's economic empowerment? Yeah, that's a really big question. (laughs) And I'd love to kind of focus in on the topic of digital financial inclusion specifically, and then I'll turn to your um, question on, on social norms. First, I think digital financial inclusion and sort of moving into this digitally enhanced age does have huge potential to either replicate or exacerbate inequalities. We know, for example, that women are less likely to have a smartphone, less likely to have access to the internet, and these inequalities might be significant barriers that increase the gap um, rather than decrease it. We also see the potential for bias as financial institutions look towards new technology like AI and machine learning to increase efficiency in activities like credit scoring. And our research shows that left unchecked biases emerge in credit scoring technologies due to unconscious coder bias or data imbalances with less data coming from the women customer segment or poor algorithm training, or a lack of leadership on organizational goals for fairness. And this is something that we've seen in other industries play out years earlier. And so I think the financial sector is starting to see these biases, but we can learn from what's happened in other spaces that have digitized perhaps faster than the financial services industry. So that's the good news. And we can do so by increasing representation at all levels, making it a management priority to pursue women's financial inclusion and to pursue fairness 
as we use digital technology to audit for and design against bias, and also to consider a multi-stakeholder effort like um, involving investors or industry thought leaders to really push that agenda forward. We're actually working uh, with support from data.org with two financial services providers to help them improve their credit scoring algorithms to make them more gender aware, which I'm really excited about. And then turning to your question on cultural or social norms, which is such an important question, I think, to consider as we talk about financial inclusion and women's economic empowerment. We know that social norms differ from place to place and might be useful in shifting our expectations about what is possible through financial inclusion, but also helping us to tailor financial inclusion so that it takes into account social norms on the one hand, or also helps to mitigate the negative effects of social norms on the other hand. We just did some research on women in Indonesia where we saw that while women in Indonesia have equality of access to accounts thanks to their social protection program, women do not have the same use with accounts as men do. They don't show the same active use. And we attribute this in part to a lack of agency and women, the women's economic empowerment landscape. Um, women are confined by their household responsibilities. They have huge dependent care responsibilities with their children and also the responsibility of managing the household budget. And so through our research, we were able to say like how financial inclusion could come alongside and work within those social norms, equipping women with their the work that they've opted into, which fits into those responsibilities. But financial inclusion can also play a role in increasing their, their agency. If you don't mind, I'd just love to share one more quick story about this research and this context. There was a woman that we talked to and we asked her, do you save any money that's not kept in money? Like, do you save any anything in assets? And she said, oh yeah, I actually buy gold with some of the extra money I earn from my business. And I thought, oh, that makes sense. That happens in a lot of places in the world where people save in gold. She said, no, no, but I go to the jeweler and I buy gold and the jeweler puts my name on it and then he puts it aside for me and he keeps it for me and then I go home. So she walks out of the jewelry store with nothing she leaves her money there <laughs> and there's just like a note on this piece of jewelry and she can go back and sell the jewelry and get her money back. So she's essentially created a savings account for herself. She likes it because it's no longer a financial asset. And so she doesn't feel like she's being deceptive or keeping anything from her husband, but it does increase her agency and it gives her more options. And so I think that's a great example of how financial services could be designed to meet those legitimate needs that her informal services are fulfilling. Mia, here's my final question. What would you say are the three most difficult hurdles that the world needs to overcome in this decade to realize the goal of universal financial inclusion for women? Not an easy question, Mia. We're handing this one over to you. Sure. Well, I will I will echo Sonia from the last question and say that's a big one. I'll maybe take a start and then maybe she can help me out. Um, I think there are, are, you know, a number of things we could point to here. I think if I were to give you three, 
I would likely say first, um, we need to continue to prioritize digital and financial literacy and training for women, but also for girls. Second, we need to continue to invest in digital infrastructure in ways that are thoughtful and intentional and not recognize the different ways that different women may use and interact with technology and financial services to some of Sonia's comments uh, in response to your last question. And particularly as we think about bringing more rural and remote women online and into banking, many will do so initially or primarily through mobile phones. So thinking about that. And then third, I would come back to the policy and regulatory environment um, for women's economic empowerment, including women's access to credit, which includes the related factors that will influence that in practice. Um, So for instance, whether women can obtain ID cards in the same way as men, whether they can own property um, in the same way as men that they may then use as collateral, whether they can engage in financial transactions in their own names or without the permission of a male relative, for instance. So the broader policy environment, I think, is, is also key to address. Sonia, any thoughts from your end? I think Mia did a great job, but I'll just add two more. I think one in reference to that last mile woman customer. I I agree. I think that'll happen through mobile and through creative ways of innovating to serve because bringing the bank to the last mile just is not going to be possible in in a physical way. But to make that happen, there are a host of environment factors that need to be in place. Like a rural woman needs to have connectivity, which she currently probably doesn't. Um, And Mia, you might be able to share a little bit about um, how the U.S. government is pursuing that in a big way. I know the World Bank also has this like digital moonshot program where they're trying to get all of sub-Saharan Africa connected to the internet. There are a lot of efforts that will accelerate financial inclusions efforts to reach the last mile customers. And then I'd say that, you know, in the last decade, we have gotten very close to solving the access problem. And in this next decade, we're going to be shifting towards use of financial services that leads to meaningful changes in people's lives. And I love that shift because it really now puts the focus on financial services that actually create change and are not just tools that people use to manage their financial lives, but tools that they use for their economic empowerment. And I'm excited about that. Sonia, Mia, I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 